Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt, exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow nor heat nor gloom of night nor the toxic rantings of the nuthouse right. A president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor more broadly and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops. None of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you, our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week after week after week. Maybe not without fail, because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some R&R and with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror in our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Hell and High Water Home Office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays, tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go, ready to get back to cranking out more tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be minding the store while we're away. And while these episodes that come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new, they will be piping hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered it all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided that these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such, with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave you to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. As we careen toward the end of another mm, eventful year in American politics, and by eventful, I mean convulsive, chaotic, and sometimes terrifying, it is suddenly clear that among the many grim and ominous developments that history may long remember from 2021 is a series of events on the legal front that appear to foretell the end of Roe v. Wade and therefore the beginning of a new 
unfamiliar and wildly disruptive era when it comes not just to abortion rights, but the politics surrounding them. And who better to have on the show to discuss these developments, what they mean and what comes next, than the former head of Planned Parenthood, the one and only Cecile Richards. The state of gender equity in the United States is really on the ropes. I feel like we've made a lot of progress, lost a lot of progress during COVID though, in terms of women's participation in the workforce, and we're trying to climb our way back. And yet the state of women's rights is precarious. Cecile Richards has been at the very center of the long-running battles over reproductive rights and gender equity more broadly for the past three decades. The daughter of the legendary Texas Democrat and former governor of the Lone Star State, Ann Richards, Cecile has been, as she willingly, happily, and wantonly allows, a troublemaker from day one. As a sixth grader in Dallas, Cecile got in trouble, the kind of trouble that John Lewis would have approved of, for refusing to say the Lord's Prayer in class, and essentially, she has been fighting her idea of the good fight ever since, working on her mother's campaigns, organizing garment workers in the Rio Grande Valley and hotel workers in New Orleans, founding the Texas Freedom Network to oppose the Christian coalition in the 1990s, starting America Votes to campaign for voter registration and participation, and then becoming one of Time Magazine's most influential people in the world as the president of Planned Parenthood from 2006 to 2018. Since stepping down three years ago, Cecile has published a fantastic memoir entitled, accurately, aptly, and appropriately, Making Trouble standing up, speaking out, and finding the courage to lead. She started yet another activist organization called Supermajority, whose mission is to, quote, create a multiracial intergenerational movement for women's equity, and most recently, becoming one of the co-chairs of American Bridge, the country's largest and most influential Democratic super PAC, which spent more than $60 million on ads to help defeat Donald Trump in 2020, and which plans to spend another $100 million in the 2022 midterms. Cecile and I have, as you might imagine, known each other for quite a long time, and we had a lot to talk about on the show this week, starting with the arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the Mississippi abortion rights case, argued earlier this month before the Supreme Court, which Cecile believes is all but certain to be decided in a way that spells the end of Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. We also talked about the draconian Texas abortion law, SB 8, which has already effectively ushered in what she calls the post-Roe era in her home state and which SCOTUS has now repeatedly declined to invalidate, as well as the potential political implications of all of this in 2022, 2024, and beyond. But we did not restrict ourselves to abortion rights. We talked more sweepingly and generally about what Cecile has defined as the women's equity agenda, including changes in laws on voting rights, gun control, paid family leave, equal pay, and more, and its progress in the Biden era. Cecile's history as an activist and her relationship with her mother and one of her three children, her daughter Lily, a former staffer for Hillary Clinton, Tim Kaine, and Kamala Harris, who, Cecile and I apparently agree, may be America's last best hope for saving us all from being scorched and drowned by the onslaught we are all currently facing of hell and high water. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. What has changed in 50 years? Um, 
Medicine hasn't changed dramatically. Science hasn't changed about viability. Women's need to be able to control their bodies, to be able to make their decisions about their pregnancy hasn't changed. The only thing that has changed is politics. So we're here on Helen Highwater with my friend Cecile Richards. Cecile, it's great to see you. Now you're at American Bridge. People think of you as Planned Parenthood woman or as supermajority woman. We'll talk about both those things, but you're now at American Bridge, but still fighting the same fights, I assume. Yes, I am. And I'm happy to still be in the fight. So those pieces of sound just now, you heard Walter Cronkite, the Walter Cronkite back in 1973 when Roe was decided, saying in a flat declarative way that the new era was at hand. And then you heard Cecile Richards, 40 eight years later, wow. 48 years later, that's a long time, 48 years later saying when the the most recent Supreme Court case on abortion was heard and reacting to that that night on the news. And I wanted to start by asking you, you said the only end of that clip was you said everything is still the same. The only thing that changed is politics. I want to expand on that just to start here. What has changed in our politics in these 48 years that put us in the place where we are now, which we'll talk about in more detail of the, the situation with abortion rights in America? Well, in a funny way, I think you can almost mark it from, I think, of the 1994 elections, which I remember so well, because that was the year my mom ran for re-election and got poured out. I mean, Democrats lost all over the country, but it was also the time that what was then called the Christian Coalition, which wasn't a Christian group, it was a political group that had sought to use sort of right-wing politics to engage a bunch of voters that were less involved and, and to get them to come out and vote for Republicans. They really began to dominate the Republican Party. And in fact, they took out, you know, the right wing of the party really took over the state party in Texas and then, you know, state after state after state. And even though historically abortion, reproductive rights, Planned Parenthood were supported by Republicans, including Republicans in office, it became a litmus test in the Republican Party. And over the last several years, we've seen not only the Republican Party agenda platform become very regressive on women's rights and on abortion rights, but also even elected officials who were formerly pro-choice or believed in a woman's right to make her own personal decisions, you know, retreat because they were afraid of getting beat in their primary by a newly right-wing Republican Party. Right. It's like, you know, you think in 1994, not only, of course, did your mom run that race and have her defeat there, but it's also the case that that was the year, of course, that Republicans took over control of the House for the first time in 40 years. And it was a rise of Newt Gingrich. Correct. It's actually, it begins in some ways, the new era in our politics of polarization and the right moving really far to the right. So here's another thing that's changed. I think we would agree. The Supreme Court of the United States has changed. Yeah. In addition, and that's, I guess, part, it's definitely part of our politics. But I, I guess I ask you, because we haven't had a chance to talk about this since the argument earlier this month in the Mississippi case that you cited, which, you know, was maybe one of the things that goes down in history about the year 2021, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. I'm curious what you heard. Everyone listened to the arguments. Everyone who cares about this issue listened to the arguments and listened to what the justices said and what the arguments were. What did you hear from the court that day? Well, first, that there was absolutely no question that even if we had a 50-year precedent that there was a, that essentially women have had this right for nearly 50 years, that they did not consider, they just considered it was something they didn't want women to have the right to safe and legal abortion. And so it really didn't matter how old it was or the uh, justification at the time. They were completely prepared, and I believe they are, completely prepared to overturn Roe. They're definitely prepared to let this law stand in Mississippi. And one reason that I feel so concerned about that is that they've let a Texas law, which I'm sure we'll talk about, yep. stand for the last you know more than three months now that has banned abortions after six weeks. I think the most chilling thing about the proceedings 
was how little women were discussed. I mean, really. And of course, I think if, if I were to pick one moment, it was certainly the Mississippi Solicitor General said in the state said, you know, women have made so much progress. And Justice Barrett said, you know, now women can just, even if they have an un- unwanted pregnancy, unintended pregnancy, they can just carry it to term and then give the baby up at the local fire station or police station. <laughs> it was the most, I mean, it was a sur- it was surreal. And, right. and it just made me, I mean, it was so chilling because you realize we just live in a completely different world than the world that she sees. And she's a young justice and it's going to be on there a long, long time. We'll get back to to Amy Comey Barrett in a minute, but I will say, I can't tell you, Cecile, the number of women I know who are either tangentially connected to politics. I'm not talking about professionals. I mean, just women who are like, who care about this issue because they care about you know, their, their, about their rights, but are, are, we're watching this and would ask this very question. We're like, what do they think is going to happen to these babies? Like, what's the plan here was the thing. And you're like, you listen to Amy Coney Barrett. You said, oh, there's not a plan here. This is not about policy. This is about ideology. Completely. There was no reality in the conversation. And I mean, another sort of was just picking favorite moments was Justice Kavanaugh basically saying, you know, it's such a hard thing to balance the interests of women and a fetus, which that was disturbing enough, but that he thought it was too difficult for the Supreme Court to weigh in on that. So let's give it to the Mississippi legislature, because, you know, in all their wisdom, they're going to be better positioned to make this extremely important decision about the rights of more than half the country. That was unbelievable. I was a very small kid when Roe got decided, but you know, I go look back on that 7-2 decision. Not not a not a not a close call in the Supreme Court right. in 1973. And a number of justices who were appointed by Republican presidents. You had justices appointed by Dwight Eisenhower, you had justices appointed by Richard Nixon who voted in the majority in Roe. And you know, it goes back to this question that we ask all the time, which is like, what does conservative now mean? And there was time on this court, on the courts in general, when Starry Decisis was conservative, and it was a, a really a conservative value, which was Long settled arrangements about fundamental rights shouldn't be upset by courts because of the fact that millions of people have built their lives around those settled expectations and that there may be arguments on both sides. But the reality is that 50 years of precedent, 50 years of generations of women building their lives, their financial arrangements, their marital arrangements, their family arrangements around an expectation, that is something that a conservative court would not upset except in the most crazy, dire circumstances, and not when there's good arguments on both sides. And that doesn't seem to be where this court is anymore, believing in stare decisis, which is a pretty important part of jurisprudence in American history. No, 100%. I can't really do any better than than you just did. I think that's right. And again, it, it didn't really come up too much in the oral argument, but that the position of the state of Mississippi was, listen, women really have it pretty good now. You know, they're able to get a job. They're able to you know, finish college. They have all these options now. So they don't really need the right to make their own decisions about pregnancy anymore. We can just get rid of that. And particularly coming from the state of Mississippi, where, as I'm sure you know, you know, women not only are underpaid, don't have affordable childcare, you know, the list goes on. But I do think that's why it is so stunning for women, is if we are literally expendable people, that we do not have equal rights. And it's not surprising to see that on the display in the Texas legislature or in the Mississippi legislature, but to see it at the Supreme Court of the United States is a gut punch. I want to just play that real quick. Got a lot of attention at the time, but let's play Sotomayor as she spoke in the arguments. The newest ban that Mississippi has put in place, the six-week ban, the Senate sponsor said 
We're doing it because we have new justices on the Supreme Court. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? I mean, this goes back to your first point, Cecile, which is, you know, that our politics have changed and therefore the court has changed. And she's raising a question. First of all, we know from polling that the country increasingly thinks of the Supreme Court as being just a political body. And we also know that it sees that it as increasingly illegitimate. What's the answer to her question that you have when you hear the justice saying, will this institution survive that stench? Will it? I mean, it's an excellent question. And I, I think some of us had assumed that these brand new justices on the Supreme Court who were, let's, I mean, let's just call it what it was. They were just jammed onto this court in almost a completely partisan fashion. Amy Coney Barrett, of course, coming on like just weeks before one of the most, you know, divisive presidential elections we've ever had. And it seemed like you thought they'd at least, you know, take a beat before overturning 50 years of precedent. But this is just the beginning. So, whether they can recover from this or not, and whether women can recover, of course, that's more what I care about, right. is how do women recover from this? But yes, I mean, the politicization of the court, not only now and in the argument we heard the other day, but in the whole seating of the court and the thought that this is now just a power play and was by certainly by President Trump and Mitch McConnell, their credibility was already in question, but this hearing was a new low. So to your question that you just raised, you said you care more about how will women survive. And, and I want to I want to just defer the discussion about politics to a little later in the podcast. But I answered that question in the practical sense, like next June, the justices repeal Roe. People talk about the number of state legislatures that will then ban abortion. But I, I just want you to sketch the vision for women in America of what that world looks like, a world without Roe. Well, that's what I've been why I've been focused on Texas, because in a way in Texas, we're already seeing what a world without road looks like, because that that's what they're living now. Right. And that is you can't essentially after six weeks, you can't get a, a legal abortion in the state. And so, of course, what we're hearing from doctors really every day is they are just turning women away, particularly women that live in rural parts of the state, young women who can't. They don't have the money or the time or the ability to fly to New York or go somewhere else. The irony, of course, you may have read, you know, is that many of them are driving to Mississippi because, you know, there is one abortion provider. So that, you know, just shows you how desperate it's going to be. But yes, if you look at the map and they've been showing them on the news all the time, about 25, 26 states will either completely outlaw abortion if Roe falls or severely limit it. And the country will look It'll be in a completely partisan fashion. There will be states where women have rights and there'll be states where they do not have rights. And of course, it's going to fall hardest on the places where women already have the toughest time, where, you know, least access to health care, right. least access to prenatal services, highest maternal mortality rates. The list goes on. To me, it's a depressing sort of just example of what's happening in this country overall which is this enormous division and unfairness and cruelty to large parts of our population. Right. We can't put too fine a point on the fact that what we know will happen is 
abortions will not disappear entirely from the United States, which means that rich white women who can't afford to get on a plane and fly to New York City will go get an abortion in New York City or other places, Los Angeles, wherever it happens to be. They're very blue. And people who are poor and don't have the means to take care of that, often non-white, will be stuck living with the consequences of having to carry babies to term that they don't want and all of the other health-related implications that I know you know. I think that's it's like the economic and racial impact is so wildly disparate that you know, it's almost impossible to talk about what post-Roe America looks like unless you take for who, you know, for who. Exactly. And for who is is that impact is super disparate. Also, just because I, I mean, you, you kind of referenced it, but a lot of people just don't realize it. I mean, abortion didn't start with Roe. Right. Actually, abortions existed. And, you know, when I worked at Planned Parenthood, I would meet doctors all the time who are now older, but who remember doing their rotations. When young, healthy women were dying in emergency rooms all over the country, from botched abortions. So it's not that abortion is going to go away. It's just going to go back in underground and unsafe. And of course, in the state of Texas, where I'm from, you know, women will probably go to Mexico because now abortion is legal in Mexico. You know, there's really no way to overstate the irony of that. The other thing is that, you know, the majority of women who have abortions in this country are already mothers. Right. So yeah. these are people making the very best decision they can for themselves and often their families. So I want to play just very quickly. I want to play one last piece of sound in this section. I want to play Greg Abbott on signing the Texas bill a few months ago. And because there's there's th something in it I want to unpack with you. So let's hear Greg Abbott and then we'll talk about it on the other side. Our creator endowed us with the right to life. And yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. In Texas, we work to save those lives. And that's exactly what the Texas legislature did this session, to pass a bill that I'm about to sign that ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. So the start of that quote, talking about his creator, you know, gives part of the game away. You talked earlier about the Christian coalition. There's a Christianist kind of a cast to this, right? Forget about separation of church and state. God has given us this right, and therefore we will now act on God, essentially a, a right that will take away the rights of man or woman and, and prefer the rights of God that Greg Abbott conjures and that a lot of people conjure in, in America. That I, points to a couple questions, I think, and then we can move off this. But I mean, look, the, the polling on abortion has been pretty consistent for a very long time. And there's always about a quarter of women who say they want abortion outlawed entirely. You know, it's about a quarter, but always been, it's been pretty stable for years and years and years. And you've got, you know, the other 75% either want a very liberal abortion regime or you want, or, or some moderate restrictions, right? What do you just personally make of that 25% of American women, which is tens and tens of millions of women who would like to see, as Amy Cody Barrett apparently would like to see abortion just banned entirely? I would presume in many cases on these religious grounds that Greg Abbott is appealing to in justifying the Texas law. I mean, first, I just can't help saying, you know, we didn't elect Greg Abbott to be God and to speak for God. So I think it's just the- we, You and I didn't elect him to anything else. Well, that's true. Okay. No, that's true. But it's just sort of, I mean, the whole idea that somehow he is channeling, you know- The creator. The, cre the creator is, is just, uh, look, I, I think there are women, there are men who feel strongly about this issue and that is their right. The point is- it's not their right to make that decision for everyone else. And I think that's fundamentally where the American people are. And, you know, I learned a lot about this when I, again, when I was at Planned Parenthood is, you know, who comes in to have an abortion? It's like everyone. It's Catholic women. It's atheist women. It's 
women who were picketing outside of our clinic, you know, the week before, but just something happened and they had to bring their daughter. And it's such a personal issue. And these decisions are so, I mean, they're probably the most important personal decision that a lot of women will make in their lifetime. And I think that is why we see consistently that the overwhelming majority of people in this country don't want to play God, as Greg Abbott does, don't want to, you know, try to make those kinds of decisions, even if they think they might make a different decision if they were in that circumstance. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to convince anybody about right. their own personal opinions yeah. about abortion, but it is, and I really do believe it is an American value that we don't live in a or we didn't until maybe now live in an authoritarian country where the government controls the most personal decisions you make, including now uh, the decisions you make about your own body. Yeah. I I'll, I would just commend every anybody listening to this conversation who cares about this. You should everybody should go read the the Caitlin Flanagan piece in the, that she wrote in the Atlantic about this which has a thing that I think for most people who are not of a certain age will just find her description of the use of Lysol and other things in, in the 50s, in the 60s, women trying to do their own home abortions using household cleaners to do it. And a very common thing, so common that Lysol ran ads, basically encouraging women to to make them aware that Lysol could be used- As an abortifacient. As an abortifacient. It's an incredible thing. And I think many young people would be stunned to know that as recently as the 1960s, that that was the reality of what abortion was that you were alluding to a second ago, Cecile, like that, you know, there are, I think, powerful arguments on the pro-life side, moral arguments that appeal to some people. But man, just look at the reality of what it was like in America in the period when that was the kind of thing that happened routinely. It's a really hideous vision. Well, I think that's one of the things that's important to think about now politically, which is, you know, we've seen, and I'll just continue on Texas for a moment because I think it's the most relevant, is, you know, for years we have had Republican politicians demagogue on this issue and the kinds of, you know, say the kinds of things that you just played that Governor Abbott said, or when he's going to round up all the rapists and that, that I thought you were going to share that, that incredible press conference. But it was always, honestly, it was sort of like a free ride for them. They could just demagogue and do all this because they knew these laws were not going to go in effect because the constitution protected women's rights. And now that's all changed. And now they are responsible, personally responsible for all the pain and suffering and cruelty that is taking place uh, and that will take place. And so we have never lived in this political reality. And I think that's going to be the most important you know, connection that we make is there are people responsible for what's happening to women and to families in Texas. You know, we'll get to the political reality and what it means and what can be changed and what politics can do to change the the public health reality and the legal reality. But it's clear. I heard I read you quoted somewhere that we are in now in the post row era. That is what you firmly believe at this point, right? Well, we definitely are already in Texas. And look, who knows? I mean, some right. some miracle may happen. But listening to that argument the other day, I just didn't feel like there was any hesitancy on the part of the justices that were appointed by Donald Trump. I mean, he said, I'm going to appoint justices that are going to overturn Roe. And, you know, we always joked about everything he said. We always thought, you know, he's just talking. Well, it turns out a lot of things he said he really meant. And I think this is this is one of those cases. All right. Um, we are going to take a quick break here to play a couple of ads and we'll come back and talk in part two of the podcast with Cecile Richards on Hell and High Water. Be right back.
And we are back with Cecile Richards on Helen High Water. We're about to take a little trip down Cecile Richards' memory lane. And any <laughs> any trip down Cecile's memory lane begins with the one, the only, the mother, the great former Texas governor, Ann Richards. Let's listen to her at the 1988 Democratic Convention giving her famous keynote on behalf of Democratic nominee Mike Dukakis. Twelve years ago, Barbara Jordan, another Texas woman... Barbara made the keynote address to this convention, and two women in 160 years is about par for the course. But if you give us a chance, we can perform. After all, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and in high heels. A famous line and one that Hillary Clinton used quite a lot in 2016, and that I think that may have been the first time that I'm probably not the first time ever invoked, but the first time in a major political context by your mom. She was funny. She was fierce. She's like grown in stature as time has passed. I remember watching her at the 88 convention from the floor and thinking, does the Democratic Party have the right nominee? <laughs> Maybe Mike Dukakis could swap with Ann Richards because she <laughs> she seemed better equipped to run that race. I'm curious what it was like to, I mean, you and I have talked about your mom on various occasions, but I'm, I never really just asked you, what was it like to grow up with Ann Richards as your mom? Well, we didn't really know any better, right? I mean, <laughs> and that was, I think that was, yeah, of course. I mean, look, John, one thing, I, you know, I grew up in Texas yes. um, and I was born in Waco and mom and dad were from Waco and, you know, they'd been high school sweethearts and they both went to Baylor. And she said going to Baylor was great because- Everything was more fun because it was either against the rules or it was a sin. And she just, you know, they kind of took on the world. But she didn't get into politics until way later. I mean, she was busy being the perfect Dallas housewife and just getting angrier and angrier and angrier and more frustrated, I think. And so I think, you know, growing up, she was like everybody else's mom. And then it was, you know, that first opportunity to run a campaign in Texas that she thought, okay, I could do this. And that kind of set her on her path. I mean, she was always enormously funny and always frustrated, I think, by the limitations that were put on women of her era. Well, it's funny. I was thinking about playing, you know, she had some great, obviously famous put downs of George Herbert Walker Bush in that speech. But I I wanted to, to put the one connected to feminism in there because is a consistent strain in her. And she tells some very funny stories, some of them quite bawdy about things that were that were always designed to illuminate and, and in a funny way kind of press the point that she was trying to make always about women. And that in that speech, that, that little speech, it's got a sting in the tail. It's funny, but she's also basically taking an entire shot of the Democratic Party yep. for not being more inclusive and elevating women more over the history of the party, right? No, absolutely. And I, I think now, you know, could she get away with in this era the things she said and, and did? But you're right. She used humor to point out so many things. And I mean, obviously, even in her the campaign, you know, for governor, just running against a good old boy with no experience who, you know, damn near beat her. And, you know, the inconsistencies or the double or triple standard that women had to face was true then and is true today. For those unfamiliar with the history, when Ann Richards ran for governor of Texas, her opponent, Clayton Williams, who would have been very comfortable in today's Republican Party, I would say. Oh, my 100%. 
his campaign was ended more or less, not ended, but what allowed Cecile's mom to win in some ways was a one big gaffe where he said that if a woman was being raped, she should lie back and enjoy it. That was like the killer blow. It was like, yeah, he compared it to bad weather. You should just, yeah, exactly. Actually, ironically too, though, you know, because there are a lot of parallels, frankly, with Clayton Williams, I think, and our former president, or Mm -hmm. just recently departed president. Because, of course, at the very end, too, he admitted that he hadn't paid taxes. And that really probably did sink him. And I think, you know, I thought about if mom could see what happened with Donald Trump, but that that no longer was was an issue, it seemed, in the Republican Party. So... I repeat the history only because I want to ask you what it was like in this context, because you worked on both these campaigns. Yep. You worked on the campaign that she ran against Williams, and then you worked on the re-election campaign that she ran against George W. Bush. After she had mercilessly skewered his father, the son got his revenge in some way politically by winning in, in that governor's race. Right. So you saw your mom win and you saw her lose. As you think about your life now as uh, having been an activist and someone pursuing the agendas that you pursued on behalf of women's equity and abortion rights and everything. Like as you go through your daily life, what are the things where your mom's ideas, her spirit, her approach to winning and losing, all of that, what is it that you is most tangible and useful to you where you think this is what my mom would have said about this. This is what my mother taught me. And it's where it comes in handy in some way. Right. Well, it's funny. Just I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, she she did. She won that one race. And that was kind of a miracle. I mean, we're all like, oh, my God, how do we you know this is, you know, the stars and the moon, everything aligned. And somehow this progressive woman gets elected governor of Texas and then, you know, loses four years later. And she just took it all in stride. I mean, I think she was, wasn't like a guy who grew up thinking, I'm going to be governor of Texas someday. By God, that is my mission. And so it was much easier for her to just keep moving. And I think that's, that is something important about women is you just, I just think women can be more resilient. But she was a big believer. I think she was always frustrated that she didn't get involved in politics earlier in her own right. right. You know, that she spent so much. I mean, you know, she was a great mom. She did all the things. But she was itching to do more with her life. So she was a big believer in what is like now my mantra, which is start before you're ready. You know, do not wait. She saw so many women saying, you know, well, I can't run for office because the kids are in preschool. The kids are in high school. I haven't had kids yet. I haven't finished my PhD. I, you know, all the things that we go through. And she just felt like, you know, when you get an opportunity, you just got to go for it. And she would love the fact, I mean, I thought in the, in the you know, 20, 2018 cycle when just a historic number of young people, women, young women, women of color just ran for office before being asked. That was her dream come true, is that finally people would just say, you know what, I can do that job. So that was, I, I think that was her main political advice is just get in now. So your mom, mom wasn't in politics, as you said, she was, you know, she was not in politics from early on. She got into it late. Some genetic material apparently got passed on from your mom to you because you were sort of a hellraiser and a troublemaker from the very beginning, right? You got, yeah. you know, you got in I trouble, got in trouble for, all the time for, for, for all the time yeah. <laughs> for refusing to say the Lord's prayer in class when you were a sixth grader mm-hmm. for wearing the black armband to protest the Vietnam War. Right. Uh, and, and all of that, you know, gets translated into, you know, political action and activism from a very early age. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially out of college, you go to Brown and then and out of college, you're essentially doing activist stuff throughout your career long before Planned Parenthood. You know, I know you worked at one point for Nancy Pelosi where you kind of went inside for a second, but most of your life has been as an activist, yeah. right? Just talk about that, about the, you know, the groups you started in Texas, then you moved in very, from group to group, but some of them you founded right. that were all activist groups. Like what was that, the progress of an activist before you got to the kind of pinnacle of it in some ways at Planned Parenthood? 
Well, I mean, I feel like that was just what our parents, one, that's just our parents raised us to do that, right? They just believe that whether it's public service in whatever way or making a difference in the world, that was the highest calling. My dad is a civil, I mean, is still alive, is a civil rights attorney, was a labor attorney. You know, our dinner table was just where everybody was, you know, sorting precinct lists, doing whatever it was. And so I think it was sort of a logical thing to become an activist. I didn't even know that. I mean, until I left college, I didn't know that was a job. And I guess it's, it is a bit of an unconventional one. But I mean, for me, I've had such a blessed life and I married another union organizer. So we've just like raised hell together over these many, many years and now raised these three troublemaking kids. So I've been very, very fortunate. And I think right now, you know, so many young people are understandably dismayed about the state of so many issues and things that we care about. But I feel like from my trajectory, by trying to make social change and progressive things happen, you just meet the most amazing people and your life is pretty rich and you're going to lose more than you're going to win. But then every once in a while, the stars align and you elect the first woman governor in her own right or in Texas, or you get birth control coverage for all women in America because you have the right president and you've, you know, and that makes it all, I don't know that makes it all worth it. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. It does a little bit. And and I, I don't want to keep harping on your mother, but I will do this. Instead of harping on your mother, I'm going to harp on your daughter, Lily, for just one second because... You know, I love that. To demonstrate that I'm the most tedious and repetitive interviewer in the history of the world, back in the 2016 campaign, Lily, Cecile's daughter, was working for Hillary Clinton, and she went on later to work for Kamala Harris in the 2020 race. Lily was in comms at, on my Showtime show, The Circus. We did an interview with her where I basically asked her the same question that I just asked Cecile about her grandmother. And this is what she said. We had this little thought. I want to play it. It's funny because you guys I mean, you all, apples not falling far from trees here. Lily Adams, let's play that. My grandmother ran for governor in 1990, and I was on the campaign trail starting from the beginning. To me, she's just, um, she's sort of a, always a presence. The secretary reminds me of her a lot. She doesn't complain, which was certainly a hallmark of my grandmother's uh, time in office. She never complained about things being harder or tougher or trying to break up a good old boys club. She just kept going and it would infuriate her critics and it would rally her uh, her supporters. So like, first of all, can we just like say, Lily's awesome, right? So Whatever now you're just gonna start. make me cry. I know, right? No. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> how much do we love Lily? Let's just give her a, it's like an early Valentine. She's like the best daughter, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. Come on. But the thing I liked about that is Mm -hmm. she makes this point about trying to break up the good old boys club, which obviously your mom was into and, and Hillary Clinton in her own different way over her whole career was about. You have fought for gender equity issues for your whole career as an activist at Planned Parenthood, which we'll talk about in a second. But like in addition to trying to fight for those issues on policy merits, did you see yourself as you moved through the world and moved up the ladder, frankly, into positions of great power and influence in, in politics? Was that one of the kind of implicit things that was driving you was that there is this good old boys club and that part of what you were personally doing was chipping away at that a little bit? It was so fascinating, even when I worked at Planned Parenthood, that you know, having to try to explain to members of Congress anything about women's reproductive health was such a joke. And in fact, I remember you know one of the really... incredible hearings we had during the Affordable Care Act when one of the Republican senators leaned over to his assistant and said, why are we only talking about cervical cancer for women? Anyway, so just to give you, I mean, as an example of how ludicrous and, and how frustrating it is to try to, you know, make progressive change when there are people in office 
who disproportionately literally don't even understand what you do. Right. For example, why should, you know, someone like Greg Abbott, who's never going to be pregnant, as far as I can tell, be opining about decisions that actually women need to make. So it's, I guess it's always been implicit in a lot of the things that I've done, but yeah. kind of, I think Lily really hit it on the head. It's like, mom was a big believer. It's like, you know, no time for complaining. Like, that's like not what we're about. And, you know, I spent a lot of years in the labor movement, which was also a good old boys network. Yes. And one of the proudest things, you know, I spent all my time organizing low wage women working in the hotel industry and the janitorial industry and the nursing homes. And they became the backbone of the service employees union. And right. I'm really proud of that. And they made it a more progressive place. So you ran Planned Parenthood. You were the face of it and the person in charge for, I think, 12 years, right? Correct. 20, 2006, 2018. That's a long run. Mm -hmm. I think on the basis of other things I've read and, and the fact that you raised it a couple times here, th that the free contraceptive thing was maybe one of the great triumphs that, that you feel partially responsible for in fighting for that. Yep. It was in huge. That period. I mean, I'll never, I mean, that was, again, you know, when the Affordable Care Act, which was, of course, such an important part of President Obama's administration, and, you know, you would have thought that the fight would have been over, you know, drug coverage or Medicaid expansion or whatever. But of course it wasn't. It was over abortion and birth control. And, I mean, it was such an important time to be doing everything we could to get women's health covered, not as a sort of side issue, but actually as a fundamental thing. Yeah, right. And there's so many pieces of progress that were made in that, you know, women couldn't be charged more for health insurance for the first time ever by insurance companies. And we couldn't be blocked from coverage because of pre-existing conditions, which were always used to block women from getting healthcare coverage. But it was that day I, I was in the office one day and in the middle of all of this, and I get a call from the White House and they said, can you, you know, can you hold for the president? And of course, Love to say that. And he came on, he said, Cecile, I've got to make three calls today. And this is going to be the, the easiest one. But I, I've got to call the Catholic Hospital Association and uh, some other Catholic group and you, because I'm about to announce at the White House that from now on, all birth control will be covered for women at no cost, no matter where they work. And that was a fight, not just that we had waged, sure. that was a fight for the centuries, right? And it just, I happened to get to be the person at the time when that watershed moment happened. Well, you play down, you're playing down your own role a little bit there, but I appreciate you being modest about it. I'm going to play one more piece of sound here in this memory lane period. This was before you took over Planned Parenthood. Back in 2000, we look, we like to go around and dig around trying to find old God clips. knows what I 20. said. Oh, my God. No, it's, it's very good, and it, and it <laughs> throws very nicely to your work at Supermajority, and I think some of the work that you're continuing to try to do at American Bridge, but I, I want to ask you about it. But this is back in 2000, but we found this thing on C-SPAN of a 20 years younger than now, which means you were like 10, I guess, when you said right, this. Right, exactly. On C-SPAN, Cecile Richards talking about her work and about the role of women in politics. This is a democracy. And I support and will fight to the death for the right of Pat Robertson and the entire Christian coalition to be involved in politics. But by God, it's high time we were as involved as they are. And if we are, we'll win. Since we will either be in the streets and in the state houses and in the courts fighting for women's rights and for civil rights, or we will surely lose them for ourselves, for our children, and for our grandchildren. That's not even a, a discussion about abortion. That's a discussion about Women have the numbers. If women rally and fight, they can win. And and that's about a much broader set of issues that I, I think of as gender equity. And there's a bunch of things under that umbrella. When you left Planned Parenthood, you started Supermajority, which yeah. you did for the last, the last cycle. That was basically a thing to say, we need to 
take on the broader agenda of, of gender equity, whether that's equal pay or paid family leave or voting rights or gun laws. And we need to get women to run. We need to get women to mobilize. We need to get women to help us to win. You, you did it for the one president, one cycle to two years, right? Was that a successful effort? And, and if it was successful, by what metrics? And why did you leave? So, I mean, partly it was, yes, I'd left Planned Parenthood and I knew that even though we had built, I think, a really good political troops and program at Planned Parenthood, millions of young people had joined and we trained them to be involved in politics and voting and working campaigns. I knew that that was not enough, right? And and coming out of, obviously, the election of Donald Trump, women were just calling all the time. I mean, I couldn't walk down the street without someone like stopping me and saying, what am I supposed to do? And it felt like even after that historic march, which you know was so important, that the worst thing could happen is if we had a march and then people just 20 years later would say, wow, do you remember that march we had? And then, you know, uh, anyway, so we started Supermajority with the idea of could you bring together women, particularly women who aren't already engaged across race and across generation and issue to realize their political power and potential. And we knew, of course, that the 2020 election was going to be really important and that women had the potential to be the deciders and and make the difference. So I'd say the, you know, I guess bottom line is women were the majority of voters and they were overwhelming the majority of voters. They, They really determined the Democratic primary. Black women in particular, you know, outperformed other women as voters. And then, of course, it was a surge election. And women, you know, I think women are the reason that not only that Joe Biden is president, but that Kamala Harris is vice president. So they made history. But there's just so much more to do. And I think already, you know, and obviously COVID was something that we didn't, you know, that was not in anybody's plans. And I think women have disproportionately, you know, borne the brunt of what has been a really tough couple of years. So the organization continues on. I made the decision that as a woman of a certain age who's been doing this all my life, mm-hmm. that one of the things that's really important is to support a next generation of women. And I, I mean, that's part of the reason I left Planned Parenthood too. It's like, I could have stayed there forever. It was like the greatest job in the world. But I think it's important that we not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And so I'm really proud of Amanda Brown Learman, who runs Supermajority now. They are still training thousands and thousands of young women activists across this country and engaging them in politics. And I chair the board. I'll continue to be involved. But I'm excited to get to support that group of women because they lead in a different way. And that's important. So you got the, the 2020 elections, as you said, were pretty important. Donald Trump got beat by Joe Biden in a free and fair election. I will point out to all the morons out there who continue to doubt that. But you know, now all of a sudden people think, hey, you know what? 2020 was really important, but maybe 2022 and 2024 are even more important. And we want to talk about those on the other side of the ad break, about the political dimensions of some of the stuff we talked about earlier, about the potential changes in abortion law, and also about some other issues that are in Cecile Richards's wheelhouse. We are here with her on Hell and High Water. We'll be right back. And we are back for part three of this episode of Hell and High Water with the one and only Cecile Richards. Let's listen to Joe Biden 
So Joe Biden hasn't talked a lot about abortion in the course of the last year, but he was, I saw this event. I went out to cover the California recall of Gavin Newsom, the attempted recall. And Joe Biden came out there right before the recall, uh, did an event and talked about abortion from the stage. So let's listen to that. And then we'll talk about that on the other side. Take a look at what's happening in states like Texas. They just passed a law empowering complete strangers to become bounty hunters, going after women who exercise their right to choose. A law that the United States Supreme Court refused to stop. Now other states say they're looking to replicate the Texas law. If you don't think women's rights are under assault, you're not looking. So I, I just said that he hasn't talked about this a lot. And I'm now echoing many of your allies in the movement and, and people who care about gender equity and about these issues. If Roe gets repealed or scaled back, the politics of abortion becomes a state by state thing. It's a fight in every state house in the country, potentially. And the questions of what the political ramifications of that are are large questions. But I want to start with this one. Is Joe Biden said enough about this, done enough about this, led strongly enough on this to your taste? Because again, I know there are allies of yours who are, are out in public saying, we need more from Joe Biden than we've had and what we've gotten, especially now that these rights are under threat in the way they are. I mean, I guess I would say, I think we need to hear more from everyone about this. And certainly, you know, the White House, Congress, because, you know, my biggest concern is that people don't know. And, you know, this what is about to happen to them. And obviously that's the biggest bully pulpit in the country. So I want to hear more from everyone and not after it's all said and done. I also just, I mean, tactically and politically, this is enormously unpopular. This is incredibly motivating for not just Democratic voters, but Republican and independent women. You know, we just got finished a big national poll this is not popular. And I, I guess I do feel that the Democratic Party has to be on offense because it's I mean, it's the right thing to do and it's the politically smart thing to do as well. Yeah, I saw that poll you guys did. And of course, you know, I'm not going to challenge it, but there's been other polling, right? right. There's some uh, recent poll, a Quinnipiac poll that said that down in Texas, that abortion is you know, only the most important issue for about 9% of voters. And if you looked at the exit polls from the Virginia gubernatorial race, where, where Terry McAuliffe tried to make abortion a big issue, it was only the most important issue for 8% of voters. And so I think, you know, there's no doubt that some of the things the court is, that the end of Roe v. Wade is not going to be broadly popular. The question is whether it's going to become a central issue in, in our politics in 2022 and 2024. And I think, you know, there are Democrats uh, strategists, consultants, the, the kind of political class who are starting to kind of wonder whether it's smart for Democrats to focus on this issue. I know you think it is, Cecile, but, you know, the, the, a lot of them point directly to that Virginia race. Obviously, that reverberated a lot throughout the party in a pretty profound and powerful way. And, you know, the lesson there for a lot of strategists is, you know, not really related to abortion rights, but related to this broader thing where Glenn Youngkin beats McAuliffe. And what happened there was Youngkin won that race with a very conservative agenda, despite the dad fleece that he wore all the time, by winning a huge swing of white women voters into his camp. And the swing, you know, is pretty stunning. You know, 13 points swing overall with white women from 2020, the Trump-Biden race, right? 13-point swing toward Youngkin with white women. And 37-point swing, I'll say again, 37 points among white non-college women 
you know, you have these Democrats who are looking at that and saying, yeah, it really helps Republicans not to have Donald Trump on the ballot. But also, it seems like Young can kind of pick the lock by talking a lot about education, which turned out to be the first or second most important issue for a lot of those women voters. And, you know, we can have a conversation about what education meant in Virginia, but it certainly was something that Young can exploit in a particularly powerful way with a lot of these non-college uh, white women. And so you think about all of that and how abortion may or may not factor into the larger complex, the larger construct of issues that motivate the women the Democrats need to win back in 2022 that they did well with in 2020, or certainly that Joe Biden did well with in 2022. So like looking at all of that, what do you, when you look at Virginia and this broader picture, including the abortion stuff folded in, what do you see as the lessons that Democrats need to learn if they're going to win the way they need to win at the midterm polls next November? So Virginia, I think, first I'll just say, Glenn Youngkin had three months that he was up on TV defining himself and we had no pushback. And I think that, you know, that's that's pretty tough. And then essentially this election came at probably the worst possible moment when Congress couldn't do anything. I mean, it was, you know, I think we didn't have a lot to run on. And I I do think, I guess, if I were taking a sort of lesson from this is that obviously the McAuliffe campaign believed that they could make Glenn Youngkin Trump light and that didn't work. I don't think it was credible. We saw in women in focus groups just saying, you know, they didn't believe it. So I think that to the extent abortion wasn't an issue is they didn't believe that Glenn Youngkin was going to be that bad. Right. It didn't land on him. And I look, I guess not about abortion, but, but sort of the meta thing is yeah. you can't beat something with nothing. And we have to be as Democrats much clearer about what our vision is to rebuild the economy, get out of COVID, put people back to work. And I guess so that, I mean, I think that's just an overall issue we've got. I do believe particularly when and if this reconciliation package finally and the Build Back Better you know, program passes, there is very concrete progress, particularly for women on things that they care about. It is as, as you know, I mean, the elements of this, whether it's affordable child care, elder care, which is off the charts, popular, a huge drain on families, making health care more affordable. All of these are concrete things that not only have the Democrats led on and eventually will pass, but the Republicans almost to a person have voted against every bit of it. So I just think there is a contrast that we couldn't make in Virginia. And I think next fall, we will be able to be on better on offense. I don't dwell too much on the notion of we can't beat something with nothing and the implications that Terry McAuliffe came out into nothing. Um, no, and I don't. And I look, I'm not trying to say it about Terry. I mean, I think it's I like, it was a bad environment. I'm saying that not about Terry. I'm saying that about the Democrats. Like, yeah, sure. We can't we're not running against Donald Trump anymore, although totally, you know, who knows what Donald Trump's going to be doing next fall. We have to be what we're for. You know, we got to put our best foot forward. And there are two follow-ups to that. One of them is this question, which relates to this education thing, right? You know, we spent some time in Virginia on the circus and talked to people and, and were down there filming. You know, it was very quickly interpreted by a lot of Democrats as being, well, Republicans played the race card with the critical race theory thing. And that's really what this is about. And that was not my perception. I think that was obviously a factor. White grievance is always a factor. And, and they played to that to some extent. Right. But there was also a, a lot of 
you know, COVID fatigue and parents who are very frustrated with the way the schools were being run and uh, confusing on the, on the mask mandates or not mask mandates. There's a lot of kind of free-floating anxiety and upsetness around schools and schooling. And obviously, the school boards have become a powder keg. This is the question I ask you, though. A lot of those are suburban women and white women, right. and they were decisive in the race. I'm not focusing on them at the exclusion of non-white women, but they were big in this race, and they will be big in the midterms. So do Democrats learn from that if you want to replicate what happened in 2018, which is what you're going to need to do, massive female turnout, without Donald Trump on the ballot, what is the lesson there? We have to grapple with this education thing. And if we're going to grapple with it, what does that mean? Is that a CRT thing? Is that something broader? Like, what do you see in that in that specific thing that you think Democrats need to focus on? Look, I agree with you. Obviously, race is always a factor, and that was a factor here. But listen, women have been through the ringer. And I, I think that there is really probably a, a global lack of appreciation for how impossible it has been for women to try to support their families, keep their kids, deal with, I mean, now, you know, you're seeing the articles now, like schools that are closing on Friday, and then suddenly women are supposed to be like, okay, what do I do with my kids on Fridays, right? And they're frustrated, and they have the right to be frustrated. So, I mean, obviously, you know, the Delta variant, that came, couldn't have come at a worse possible time for the Virginia race and more, but showing women and parents that we are empathetic and understand and that our priority is creating stability so that they can both, you know, support their kids and that they can go back to work. That is, to me, that's what this issue is about. And we shouldn't over course correct here, but it's a problem. And we've got to get past this up and downness of schools and support for kids. And look, I think the interesting thing is, it's all the issues that we've known as women that have made us nuts forever. Like no affordable childcare plan in this country, you know, no paid family leave for when you have to take maternity leave, you know, no way to deal with your elder parents who you can't find a caregiver for. So they're now living in your attic and all the things. And COVID just added the frustration for women. So in a way, it's good. It's all coming out. I feel like the Build Back Better plan is actually addressing some of these issues. But we have to demonstrate that we hear that. And frankly, the Republicans don't hear any of it. And they're against and they voted against all of it. You know, it's just that contrast is, I think, going to be important. But you're right. People have to feel like there's hope at the end of the tunnel and that their lives are getting better. I have one more piece of sound and one question on the other end of it. Here it comes. It's, oh, dear. You know, I think about no, no, this. No, no, you'll like this piece of sound. 2018, you know, we remember what happened in that midterm. Blue wave. Yes. Incredible, incredible female turnout. But one of the most celebrated candidates who was running in 2018 did not win a race that a lot of people cared a lot about. And someone who's even who was a hero to a lot of people then really became a hero in 2020 because Georgia went blue and gave the, the United States Senate two Democratic senators. That person, Stacey Abrams, she running for governor again now is going to maybe have a rematch with Brian Kemp or maybe she'll be running against David Perdue. Who knows? I'll see how that goes. But let's listen to Stacey Abrams announce her campaign and then we'll talk a little about her and then we'll let Cecile go home. We are one Georgia. Regardless of the pandemic or the storms, the obstacles in our way or the forces determined to divide us. My job has been to put my head down and keep working toward one Georgia. For our next generation who should have more than we can imagine. That's the job of governor, to fight for one Georgia, our Georgia. And now it's time to get the job done. I said before, she's a hero to a lot of people and she's done 
you know, incredible work done there in terms of voting rights. And that's an issue that you care about, part of your gender equity agenda. I guess I, I ask you this about about well, first of all, I mean, also someone who kind of potentially could remind me a little bit of your mom if she ends up winning this race will be a first in a in a lot of ways. But you look at these some of these larger questions of like whether Democrats are really going to turn out in 2022. You know, I'll tell you right now in your home state of Texas, not a lot of people who think Better O'Rourke's going to win that race. Not a lot of people. A lot of people, what people thought were more hopeful about him in 2018 and think that without Trump on the ballot, it's going to be hard slog for for even someone who can raise as much money as Better O'Rourke and has a national profile. As you look at the Abrams race, what do you think of her? And what do you think about her prospects in running in this environment that she now is a Trump-free environment that she has to run in now in the state of Georgia? There is no more charismatic and loved candidate running anywhere in the country more than Stacey Abrams. And that is, I mean, it was sort of true when she ran the first time, but a lot of folks didn't know her. And now everyone knows her. And I will will tell you, you know, she announced right after the Supreme Court hearing, and I cannot tell you how many women called me and said, this was a terrible week for women at the Supreme Court, but thank God Stacey Abrams is running in Georgia. She is galvanizing and has a potential to galvanize people from, I think, both in Georgia, but all across this country. She will have the money she needs. And the wonderful thing about Stacey, or, well, and just the situation in Georgia, well, the difference between Georgia and Texas is, one, we won two United States Senate races there in a really tough environment, right? And carry the presidential race to carry in the presidential and carry, Exactly. Race. So there's a pathway that people have seen and yeah. that we've, you know, we all know. Um, and the other thing is, this is not Stacey Abrams just appearing on the scene and saying, I want to be governor. She has spent the last, you know, 15, 20 years and a lot of other people building the infrastructure for her to win. And that is all the difference. And because you can be, as we know, you can be charismatic and on TV and all this thing, but unless you have the fundamentals right, this is all about voter turnout. Um, I am incredibly optimistic. And now, of course, that there's going to be this like complete knockdown, drag out Republican primary fight. Um, I think that it's going to give Stacey such an opportunity to really pull her campaign together and demonstrate what she's for. I realized that I I foolishly I want to revise and extend my remarks, as they say in Congress. I foolishly said a Trump-free environment. Of course, that's the whole thing. It's not going to be a Trump-free environment in Georgia in 2022. We're going to have Donald Trump all over the place. That's right. Donald, Donald Trump's going to be on there. It's going to be just uh, going to be a lot of Trump down in Georgia. That man, <laughs> that man, that you think that man like peaches or something. He's just always over, all over the place there. Did you ever think about running for office? I did. I mean, I have. I just, I don't know. There was just never the time where I thought like I wanted to do that more than what I was already doing. And you know, you, you mentioned I and I worked for Speaker Pelosi for a, a hot second, which was one of the most incredible experiences of my. I, I feel like I learned so much from that woman. Yeah. But I realized I'm I'm like better on the outside. I like to organize people. I like to you know pull people together, make change. So I don't know, but maybe somebody in my family. I'm. This is what I'm driving to. I'm driving. I knew you I'm, were. I'm, it's like <laughs> I, sw- I swear. I swear to God. I swear to God. Lily Adams for president in 2030. Too. Okay, we'll save this. Save this tape. I'm thinking with you. If you you got a the guiding hand, 
You know, this is like what the whole your whole life's been. You can be like a combination oh. of James Carville, Lee Atwater, <laughs> and and Donna and Donna Brazil. And you can take your daughter and there and make go. her and, and make, make her, it happen. Yes, another Adams presidency. Who doesn't want to see another Adams presidency? No, you know? for like, real, for real. No, it's funny. I mean, I felt like for many years that I was just the genetic link between Anne Richards and Lily Adams. And so, if if that is my role in this world, there would be no higher honor. Cecilia, you're the best. Um, thank you for thank you for taking the time. It's a it's a dark and and ominous time. And all I can say is I I'm always for someone who's been fighting this particular fight. You know what's been an, sometimes an ugly fight, sometimes a dispiriting fight for a very long time. And now, really, in some ways, the the thing that you've devoted so much of your life to is in more fundamental threat than it's been pretty much your entire adult life. You know. The fact that you still have optimism and energy and commitment and focus, no matter what side you're on, like it's tough in these circumstances to keep that, and you somehow do. So there's a good holiday lesson in that. Everyone, you know, things are bad out there, but keep your chin up. Yeah, that's right. As Tony Kushner wrote in Angels in America, the world only spins forward. And I think we just have to remember that. So anyway, it's good to be with you. There's got to be some good Texas aphorism that Anne Richards said, that basically the same thing. Anderson and Tony Kushner, I'm sure. But we could, if we looked yes. hard enough, we'd find it. We'd find it. That's right. Okay. Happy holidays, Anne. Thank you, John. You too. See you later, Cecile. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Cecile Richards for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineer the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender, who may or may not actually exist. It's possible she's just a very brilliant AI paired with a hologram. She's our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro Russell, that man, is our executive producer. <laughs>